0: We're going to pray, and uh, then we're going to dive into Acts chapter 9. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together as friends and family this morning. Lord, I want to pray specifically for the kids as they head downstairs for Kids Club. Lord, I pray that uh, you'd help them to hear and understand your word. I pray that you'd be working in their hearts and their minds so that at a young age, they would be coming to trust you and be born again, and that they could walk Uh, through their child and teen and adult years as one of your disciples. I pray for the parents of the kids, that you'd strengthen them, that you'd help them to love and to lead them well, that you'd give them wisdom and discernment to know what to do in situations, that you'd um, help them to parent in a way that is under your lordship and obedience to you so that their kids can see uh, you, can see them submitted to you and the kids can submit to them, and everything works as, as God has planned there. So Lord, we ask that you'd be working in our families, you'd be working in us as individuals, uh, you'd be working in us as a church. As we come now and we place ourselves under the authority of your, your word, we pray that you would uh, minister to our hearts and our minds, help us to understand what it is that you're saying to us, to know what it is that you want us to do with it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are working through the book of Acts, and we've gotten to the section where we've met this guy named Saul. And Saul is one of the original bad dudes of the Bible. He was a hater of Christ, hater of Christians, persecutor of Christians, jailer of Christians, murderer of Christians. And we saw last week how God miraculously intervened in Saul's life and turned him around 180 degrees with a dramatic conversion. Acts 8, we read this about Saul before his conversion, 8.33, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So He's a bad dude and he's doing bad stuff. In Acts 9, where we started last week, Saul has walked six days to get to the city of Damascus, He is so intent on persecuting the early Christians that he walks to another country in order to try to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem. Now, just think about that in today's um, political environment. That would be like me, as a religious leader, securing papers, that's what Paul has, to go to Canada and to arrest people of another religious background and bring them to Versailles to put them on trial. That's a weird situation, right? But that's what's happening here. As he walks to Damascus in order to gather Christians, bring them back to Jerusalem, and put them on trial. Acts 9, 1 and 2 says this, but Saul, still breathing threats and murders, just oozing out of him against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's how the early Christians were referred to, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so Saul is full of this religious zeal, even to the point where he's gonna walk six days to another country in order to try to arrest Christians and bring them back. Lots of religious zeal, lots of religious uh, energy. He thinks he's fighting on the side of God. He thinks that, that the Spirit of God is pleased with him. But years later, the same man would write in Galatians 5, and 23, that when the Spirit is working in someone, it produces a very different kind of fruit than what was happening in Saul's life at that time. Saul was full of anger and bitterness and rage and falsehood and hatred and all that. And that is not what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. Instead, in Galatians 5.22 and 23, he says this, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The only way that Saul can write that is because God miraculously changed him from hateful, dishonest, evil, just working against God, Saul, into a new person, eventually to be known as Paul, who then was displaying these fruit of the Spirit. If we go back to Acts chapter 9, The moment that things really started turning for him is when he's on his way, he's almost to Damascus, there's a bright light, he's knocked on his rear, he's blinded, and Jesus speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And they have this little conversation back and forth, and it becomes obvious that Jesus has chosen Saul, the most dangerous enemy of Jesus' followers. He's chosen him to be a special ambassador, a special worker for Jesus' kingdom. And so later, in that passage that we looked at last week, a Christian named Ananias is sent to go pray for Saul, and he walks into the room, and he says, Brother Saul. And I told you that last week, that was really the most beautiful part in there for me, that Ananias, who had every reason to fear for his life, to believe that Saul was coming to capture him and take him back to Jerusalem, now walks in, and because he's been convinced by Jesus, he says to Saul, Brother, you are my brother. You are now with me in Christ. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then that section ended this way. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose he was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And we noticed how the first thing that Saul does after he has been converted to Christ and recognized by other Christ followers is he submits himself to baptism. He immediately goes public. Saul's a very public guy. Right? And so whether it's before Christ, zealous to persecute Christ and the Christians, or after he meets Christ zealous to be known as a Christian. He's just all in right away, identifying publicly through baptism that he, the former hater of the church, is now a member of the church. So what did he do after that? Did he then lie low for a while? Not at all. This is where we start today. This is Acts chapter 9, 19. We're going to start with the second half of the verse, and if you're following along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 917. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. This is a 180-degree switch, and Luke's words here, Immediately, this is really true. This is hater of Christ, hater of Christians, now proclaiming publicly in the Jewish synagogues that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Saul is immediately changed. And people wonder, has he gone crazy? Has he lost his mind? Maybe some of you have experienced that. Not that you've lost your mind, although some of you may have. But when you came to Christ, were there any friends or relatives who thought you had lost your mind? They wondered, well, maybe it's just a phase. Maybe he or she will grow out of it and become the person that we knew before. Imagine there's a bunch of Christians in Damascus and there's a bunch of non-Christians in Damascus looking at Saul wondering, has he just flipped his lid? And will it wear off and will he go back to the Saul that we knew before? Some people are hoping that he'll go back to the Saul that we knew before. Others are hoping that he will not go back. The Christians open their lives to him and they trust him eventually. That's very dangerous. Saul doesn't go back. The old Saul is fading quickly into the rearview mirror, but people wonder if maybe he's faking it or even laying a trap. Maybe this is all just a clever way of capturing more Christians. So verse 21, all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of these who call on his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, I wish we had some more details there. How exactly did he go about proving this? What was his argument to the Jewish community there, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ that they've been waiting for? How did he prove it? Yeah, I would have loved to be able to listen into to that. But we don't get to. Instead, we just get this statement that he increased in strength, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, proving that Jesus was the Christ. If you're familiar with the, the early part of the story of Jesus, this may sound familiar to you. If we go back to Luke chapter 2, 40, remember, Luke and Acts are written by the same guy, Luke. And it's like part one and part two. So if we go all the way back to the beginning of part one, Luke 2.40, Jesus was just a baby at the time. He's brought to the temple for the special dedication service. And then we read this, Luke 2.40, The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. The favor of God was upon him. And just a few verses later, when he's 12 years old and they've, the family has come back to the temple to worship and it's a big festival and there's all kinds of people around. And then the, the family leaves to go home and it's a big caravan all headed out to town. And all the adults in the caravan are just assuming that the other adults are keeping track of all the kids. And then they realize once they're way out in the country, oh no, we don't have Jesus with us. It'd be like leaving Disney World, getting to Georgia and realizing you have forgotten a kid at, just, at Disney World, right? Can you imagine they go back, they look for him, they search for a couple days, they find him and start walking back home. And then Luke, same guy says this, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Because it's the same guy writing this as writing Acts 9, I think the way that he's wording things is meant to draw some parallels for us, that this, this newborn baby Christian Saul is growing in his wisdom and in his strength, just like that newborn Savior Jesus. And though Saul is only a few days old, spiritually speaking, he's already growing strong and confounding the enemies of Jesus. So as Saul grew, as he grew quickly, as he learned to take his skill for debate and argument and turn it around to go in the opposite direction. What happened? How was he received? Well, the persecutor became the persecuted. The hunter became the hunted. When I wrote that earlier this week, I immediately thought of a famous scene in the first Jurassic Park. Any original Jurassic Park? Uh, fans here, yep, kind of went downhill afterwards, but first one, oh, man, that was amazing, especially to see it in the in the cinema, big screen. That was that was amazing. So I thought, we'll just take a break here. We'll watch a one minute clip from Jurassic Park One where the hunter becomes the hunted. don't worry, we'll stop it right before the guy gets eaten. Okay, all right, go ahead, Lindsay. Memories. They're out hunting the velociraptors. They don't yet know how smart they are, that they can make plans and function as a pack or team. Girl, one of the best lines in that movie the hunter became the hunted here's what it looked like in Acts verse 23 when many days had passed the Jews plotted to kill him their plot became known to Saul they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall lowering him in a basket many years later Saul would himself, write of that time between his, his conversion and when he runs for his life from Damascus, and he would actually, he'd fill in a whole lot more for us there. So when, when Luke simply says, many days had passed, Saul later says, well, it was actually three years. That's a lot of many days, right? And he wasn't in Damascus that whole time. Uh, I'll show the the map here. Actually, he went out into Arabia, which is just this giant mass of sand off to the east and and southeast, and uh, he spent three years mostly alone, and he tells us he's learning from Jesus the things that he needed to know in order to become the apostle and the missionary and the church planter that he would become. So those many days, that three years, he comes back to Damascus at some point, and he's still doing his whole debating with everybody. Thing And the, the folks who were on his team, the, the Jewish people who had not converted to Christianity, they plot to kill him. And in this Mission Impossible kind of moment, he's lowered in a basket through a hole in the, the city wall in order to escape for his life. What does Saul do then? Interestingly, he's just escaped from the people who want to kill him. He chooses to go to Jerusalem where everybody else who wants to kill him is in power. Saul is not a coward. You might say he's looking for a fight. Verse 26. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Of course they didn't. The last time they saw this guy, three years before, He was arresting them. He was standing over the dead body of Stephen, having overseen and administered the stoning of the first Christian martyr. Of course, they're not going to believe the rumors that they've heard. There's just too much at stake, right? But in their fear, they were actually in danger of working against God. But God intervened. This time not in a miraculous light and knocking somebody on their rear and a voice from heaven, but he sent a regular guy to intervene. 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now Barnabas' name means son of encouragement, and he definitely lives up to it here. He was apparently either a local of Damascus or was there at the same time that Saul was. He had seen the radical conversion and the radical new lifestyle of Saul. And he could go to the Christian church in Jerusalem and say, I can vouch for this guy. He is not faking it. He has been truly transformed. In doing that, as a son of encouragement, he's a great encouragement to Saul And he's a great encouragement to the church leaders. He puts courage into them. He encourages them so that they can choose to trust the sovereignty of God at work in this very surprising, unlikely, and in their opinion, dangerous situation. Now, I want to take that situation out of that immediate context and notice a parallel here in our world, right? Walking into a church building, a church service for the first time, can be very scary. If you've done it recently, you know what that scariness is like. Will you know anybody? How may, Will you see friendly faces? Will people be kind to you? Will they be hospitable? Are there certain things that you just, you have to know? Like when do you sit up and, or stand up and sit down, or say certain things, or, you know, what, what do we do in the service? Where are the bathrooms? What do I do with my kids? You've got all these... Questions that are going through your minds when you visit a church worship service for the first time. Friends, if this is your home church and you're comfortable here, I encourage you to see things through the eyes of someone who is a visitor, coming for the first or second or third time and just trying to figure out what to do here. They're nervous. What are they nervous about? They've got questions. What do they have questions about? How could you serve them by being friendly and hospitable. You might be used by God, as Barnabas was, as a son or a daughter of encouragement, and that might make all the difference in someone's life. They gathered up the courage to come to a a new place with new people and new ways of doing things, and they didn't know what to expect, and it is perhaps that you are called to be the Barnabas that serves as the bridge between them and their new life. I know that's different than what's happening here with Saul. It's on a much smaller scale, but I see the parallels there. Verse 28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. So uh, that's not somebody who's in favor of Helen. Uh, Hellenists would be the, those who are the Greek speakers, the Greek culture um, it gets used a couple different ways in the New Testament. In this case, it's you've got like the, the Jewish, Jewish people and the Greek Jewish people, and they have different arguments about things. So he's just disputing against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, and they sent him off to Tarsus. So he escapes from another city in order to save his life. If we look at the map, we'll see where he's been. He's gone from Jerusalem up to Damascus, he's gone out to Arabia, back to Damascus, he's gone down to Jerusalem. He's now been uh, secretly uh, escaping from Jerusalem out to Caesarea on the coast, gets in a boat, he sails north. If we zoom our map out, we'll see where he's going. He's going to what is today Turkey, to the city of Tarsus, where he is from. He's going to his hometown. We don't know anything about how the folks in his hometown received him but he's a changed man from the last time that they saw him. And I assume that he came in full throttle, got to tell you guys about Jesus, and they were probably like, what has happened to Saul? At least he's not trying to kill people anymore, but he has lost his mind. What is going on? Man, I wish we could know what happened there. Saul is a lightning rod. Wherever he goes, lightning is striking there. Disrupting, causing chaos in in a good way, right? God works through that disruption. He brings so many people to Christ as a result of, of lightning rod Saul. What happens in Jerusalem now that the lightning rod is on a boat headed north to Tarsus? 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So there's this season of rest. There's a season of health and being built up. Now, as Christians, we know that we are to expect hardship and challenge in the world. Right? Jesus warns us. The rest of the New Testament warns us that. But notice that in this particular situation, it's the sovereign will of God to give the church a rest. Right? They've, they've had years of persecution, of challenge, of losing their, their friends and their family members to imprisonment and even death. And the, the leaving of Saul marks the beginning of a short season of peace for the Christians. Now, I'm not suggesting that what Saul was doing was wrong, that he was working against God or anything like that. I'm just saying that in God's sovereign will, at that moment, God says, you, my beloved church in Judea, Samaria, Galilee, I'm going to give you rest. and I'm going to build you up, and you're going to be at peace. That sounds really good to me. Twenty twenty was a challenging year for all of us. The beginning of twenty twenty one, we had John coming on as an elder. We had Pastor Daniel with a few months under his belt, kind of figuring things out. I looked at the the church, and my stated goal to those elders, including Russell, was it's my hope that 2021 will be a year where we kind of rest as a church and we grow strong and we regroup in certain areas and that we just we don't have to deal with some of the the conflict and the controversy and the things that we had dealt with going through 2020 and 2019 before then that was not in the sovereign will of God though in 2021 in the first couple months of 2022 have been the hardest season of my life as a pastor. But God is still sovereign over all of that. Yeah. And it may be that in God's sovereign will, he brings us into a time of rest and building up and peace. That's my hope. I don't know what he's going to do. That's, that's my hope. If he wants to take his cues from me, which is never a good reason, or never a good idea, that's, that would be my hope for the rest of this year. So I want to look at these last couple verses and say, imagine what it would be like for us. Let me read them for you again. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, It multiplied. There's a few things in the list there. Peace. I want our church to live at peace with each other. Now I know there's a corrupt world that's always working against God's people, that is to be expected, right? But let's work hard to live at peace with each other. So let's surrender our hurts, our fears, our agendas, our grievances. Let's surrender all of that to Jesus. If we have a a wrong that we perceive against us, let's, let's put it aside and trust it to the Lord. If we are tempted to withhold our relationship or withhold our hearts and guard against any kind of vulnerability, let's choose to trust each other instead. Romans twelve eighteen, which we read a couple weeks ago, fits this well. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You can't live peaceably with everybody, but if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The next thing on the list in these last couple of verses is the idea of being built up. Now, I would love for us to finish out 2022 as stronger church than what we currently are, stronger in, in any way that you can imagine. I want to see you guys regularly studying the Bible on your own and together in groups. I want to see you developing lives that are permeated and saturated with prayer that it just becomes your your natural tendency that when you're um, driving on your own, walking on your own, walking to between classes or have a moment of silence that you just naturally are expressing your thoughts to God pouring out your heart. I want to see... People choosing to partner with us in covenant membership to be counted as one of us and invested together as one of us. I see people risking as they lead and serve in new ways. So Lafino's thank you for serving and leading us this morning. So I know that anytime you you step up and do something, even even if you guys are old pros at it, right? It's still it's a risk. It feels feels scary, right? So thank you for doing that. I want to see you guys inviting friends and family to worship or to youth group on Wednesday nights or to study the Bible together, even just like I'm really looking forward to, just going disc golf and hanging out and building friendships that hopefully point to Jesus. Okay. Let me remind you, though, that we do not build this church. God uses us to build the church. He builds it. Jesus himself said this very clearly in Matthew 16 18. He said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, that was the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, on this rock, this confession, I will build my church. I, Jesus says, will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That doesn't mean we're not important in the process, but we are not the chief builder. So I pray, Lord, please build your church. The next thing on the list, walking in the fear of the Lord. As we've gone through this short series a few weeks ago on church discipline, I hope you had this growing sense of the weight of the call of holiness on your life. And that that built a healthy fear of the Lord in you. The Bible says repeatedly that the beginning of wisdom, if you want to be wise, where does that start? It's the fear of the Lord. Is Jesus, your Savior and your Rescuer, guaranteeing you entrance into eternal life? Great. Is he also your Lord and Master, having all authority over your life? The New Testament would know nothing of separating those two things. Savior and Lord go together. And yet... As we commoditize religion, we try to think, oh, what can I get from God? How can I be saved and get the benefits that I want without actually losing any of my <laughs> rights and freedoms? We turn things upside down in that. But let me encourage you guys. True life, true freedom, joy, peace, all of that comes not in trying to get benefits from God, but in full surrender to him as both Savior and Lord, and walking in the fear of the Lord. Next on the list, comfort of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in all whom God have, has saved by grace through faith alone and Christ alone. The Spirit does many things. He convicts us of sin. He helps us to understand the Word of God. If you, if you can open up the Bible and read a, a passage written 2, 3, even 4,000 years ago, and you can understand it and know what to do with it in your life, that's because the Spirit of God is helping you do it. There are some passages where you read it like, unless the Spirit works, I have no idea what this is saying or what to do. But he delights in doing that, helping us understand the word. He gives us gifts for ministry to serve each other. And as this list mentions, he comforts us. Now, this is not the same as comfy cozy, like you cuddled up in your favorite blanket. But this is the idea of when you are afflicted, he is our refuge and our shield. When we're attacked, he stands guard over us. When we are sad and broken, and we just don't know what to do with our kids or our finances or our spouse or our situation like we're just at the end of it. We don't know what to do. He is our comforter. He draws us close to him and he ministers to our anxious hearts. He is the comforter. And then the last thing on the list, multiplied. There are times where growth happens. There's times where harvest happens. There's times when planting happens. There's times when fire comes and ravages the field. I pray that this is the beginning of a season of multiplication for us as a church. That God would multiply disciples, that he would use us to share the gospel with those who need to hear it. They would receive the truth of the gospel, come in repentance and faith to new life, and someone who is dead spiritually would become alive in Christ spiritually. I pray that God will do that through our church in this season. I pray that God will multiply leaders that he would be strengthening us, that he would be filling the holes, that the way he has gifted us naturally and supernaturally, we would offer ourselves in his service and that the whole church would be built up. And then finally, I pray that God would multiply our church. It has been my hope since coming here six years ago that someday God would use our church in partnership with other churches to plant a church. I've always envisioned as north of here, between here and and Grand Lake, to plant a gospel church in the farm fields between here and the lake. Now, I don't think there's any way that's happening this year. But God could make progress towards such a thing this year. He could be building you as a disciple, as a leader, getting ready even maybe to send you off for such a church plant experiment. Would you join me in praying that God would do these things in us this year? At peace, built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and multiplied. Those sound so good to me right now. Now, before we wrap up, I just want to address and like remind you guys of a basic thing. Because when we see... The dramatic conversion of Saul: 180 degrees, short period of time, enemy of God to champion of God. the conversion, the, the radical life after. When we see that, it can be our tendency to think, "I am so slow. I am so, so much less than that. If we think that Saul's conversion and new life should be the normal for us, We're going to be like, I'm just a failure, right? There's no hope. But Saul, who, as we look at him in Acts here, is just amazing as he's saved by Christ and used by Christ almost right away. He struggled with sin. He struggled with what he would call the flesh, the old life that works against the spirit, the new life. He struggled his whole life with that. And so, decades later, when he's writing to the church in Rome, he says this, wretched man that I am. Like, he's been walking with Christ for decades at this point. He says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He's not saying, I hope I die. He's saying the flesh, the old me, is it's still a body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the answer to his question. So then, I myself serve the law of God, the, the word of God, the way of God, with my mind, but my flesh, I, I, I serve the law of sin. There's still this battle going on inside of him. The old verses to new, the new, even Saul, even after decades of walking faithfully with the Lord. I hope that encourages you. We are all, if we are in Christ, we're walking a, a process of progressive sanctification. Sanctification means to become more like Christ, more holy. Sanctus is the word holy. And it's little steps, and sometimes it's great big leaps, like at the beginning of Saul's spiritual life, but it's progress towards the goal of becoming more like Jesus. And we look at Saul, and we think, it's like God put him in the microwave and got him warmed up in 30 seconds, and we are stuck in the crockpot pot. And we've been going for days, simmering. But the same guy, again, this time writing to the church in Philippi, says this. Not that I have already attained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind the old life, straining forward to what lies ahead, greater Christ-likeness, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is how we're to look at our lives. Forgetting the past, pressing on toward the goal the future, the upward call, the progressing more towards Christ-likeness. Maybe we'll get zapped and make a huge amount of progress like Saul did right away. More likely, it's little steps of obedience becoming more and more like Jesus. So with that reminder, let me also remind you that it, you are the junior partner in that arrangement. That the greatest work, the work to save you, was done by the senior partner, by Jesus himself. And so when when, when Paul writes, I'm pressing on towards the goal, it's not that he's he's trying to earn his salvation, he's not trying to be accepted by God, he has already been saved by God, already accepted by God because of the death of Jesus on the cross. And out of thankfulness for that, he presses on towards the goal to become more Christ-like. We're going to celebrate communion in in just a moment. And if you have been saved by Jesus, you are welcome to come and and remember the death of Christ and proclaim the death of Christ through communion here this morning. It is a reminder that even in the, the dramatic conversion of Saul, it's not about Saul. It's about Jesus and what Jesus did. Maybe you had a dramatic conversion. Maybe you had a a slow conversion. Maybe you can't even point back to a time you just realized someday, wow, God has saved me. I don't even know how that happened. However God has worked in you is more about him than it was about you. And we can celebrate that in communion today. We're also going to Sing a song with communion to, to end out the, the service. It's called It Was Finished on the Cross. And that is a reminder that we do not do the work to save ourselves, but that Jesus did that work. And you know, it was finished, completed, done on the cross. We contribute nothing to our own salvation. And then, wonder of wonders, Jesus calls us to partner with him, becoming more like him, walking forward from that moment on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words out of Acts and Romans and Luke and Philippians. uh, Lord, I know that there's some people here today that they just, they needed to hear the encouraging parts of this. And you know, there's there's challenge in there, but Lord, we we needed the encouragement. We needed to to know that you have done the, the real work for us and that we can rest in that to know that you have chosen us and claimed us and adopted us as your sons and daughters, and we can rest in your love, Father, perfect fatherly love. And Lord, not only can we rest and entrust ourselves to you as individuals and as families, but also as a church. So Lord, again, we offer ourselves to you corporately, and we say, please work in us, work through us, use us for your glory, for the good of your people, for the growth growth of your kingdom. Lord, if it's a season of rest you give to us, we will rejoice in that. If it's a season of being built up, strengthened in you, we will rejoice in that. If it's a season of challenge and, and stretching, we will rejoice in that too. Lord, we know that We don't get to make the plans. We don't get to tell you what we think you should do. We get to trust you. We get to obey you. We get to walk humbly with you. And so please help us to do that, Lord. And transform us more into the image of your Christ as we go through that progress of sanctification. In Jesus' name, amen.